Hey Grace, it's good to be with you. Now, many of you know that I'm a big Star Wars fan. Um, that's no secret. So it's probably also not a surprise that I also enjoy Indiana Jones. Uh, those franchises are very similar. And I think of in The Last Crusade, if you remember, they've, they've just found the Holy Grail. And so Indiana and, and Donovan and their whole group kind of comes and they find this the grail and they find all these different cups. And there's an old knight there who's guarding it. And he makes them choose which one they think is the grail. Well, if you know the gruesome tale, Donovan chooses the wrong one and quickly ages and dies. And the knight then, he kind of sits there and very slowly says, he chose poorly. Now, that's the understatement of the century, I'm sure. We didn't need that statement to tell us. But nonetheless, the reason I'm telling this story is because many of us can actually think that's the way that God is. Now, he's like this old knight sitting back and waiting for us to decide, waiting for us to make a decision. But it's not some neutral decision. It's one that he will either pronounce blessing or curse after, yet he's not telling us. Or maybe you think of your boss who you know there's, there's a way they want you to do this, but you don't know what it is. Or your spouse, you want to take them to dinner and you want to know where they want to go, and you know they actually have a preference but they're not telling you. That can be super frustrating, right? Well, we often are tempted to think that's what God is like. That he has a way that he wants us to live, that he has uh, ways he wants us to decide, and that depending on those, he will either say we chose right or we chose wrong. We chose wisely or we chose poorly. And we think that God is just waiting for us to make a decision or that we must kind of try to figure out what his will is for our lives. See, all of us are probably searching for God's will. All of us want to know, how do I please God? And yet, with those two illustrations, and I think the way that many of us approach the will of God, we are left thinking that God's will is something that he has in mind for us, but has not told us. That we have to go searching for to try to figure it out. Well, we're wrapping up today our short series on the sufficiency of Scripture. And what we believe with the sufficiency of Scripture, the way that we've been defining it the last few weeks, is that Scripture is sufficient to know God and to follow God. And this morning we'll be looking at the second part of that statement, that it is sufficient to follow God. And what that means is that God has told us in His Word how to live a life obedient to Him. He's not hiding from us. He's not just sitting back waiting for us to decide. He has told us how to please Him. And we see that in his word. And so uh, I want to begin, for risk of oversimplifying things, by saying that if the Bible addresses it, it's a matter of obedience. That is, if the Bible says do it, we do it to obey God. If the Bible says don't do it, we don't do it to obey God. But if the Bible doesn't address it, then it is not ultimately a matter of Christian obedience, but is in the realm of Christian freedom and wisdom. That's what we mean when we say Scripture is sufficient. And it should lead us to a greater confidence in God's Word. It should lead us to a greater freedom in how we live our lives, knowing that God has told us how to follow Him and how to please Him. And it should ultimately lead us to a greater love for God and a love for others. Everything that we do, everything that we learn, should lead us to a greater love for God, or else, as Paul says, if we do all these things and have not love, we are nothing. And so, I invite you to turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3 is where we will be at today. And if you are familiar with this passage, you're probably wondering why it took us to the last week of our series to actually get here. 
2 Timothy 3 is maybe the clearest and most well-known description of the Bible in the Bible. These are Paul's words to a young pastor named Timothy. This is the second letter that we have from Paul to Timothy, and we know that Timothy was the pastor of the church in Ephesus and was maybe rather timid, but was facing some false teachers that were raging in the church. And Paul's advice to him is this, be committed to the word of God. We see this in 2 Timothy chapter 3. We'll pick it up in verse 10. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and, from, and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Amen. This is God's holy word. It is sufficient for our faith and for our practice. And so what I want to, to, to do from this text is I want to make four observations for you. Four different observations, and I hope to connect them to what the Bible accomplishes in us. First, Scripture is sufficient to guard against false teaching. Scripture is sufficient to guard against false teaching. Now, as we've already said, the, the church at Ephesus was dealing with a whole lot of stuff that was going on. Verses 1 through 9 of this chapter detail the false teachers and what they were doing, how they were behaving, what they were teaching. And so, here's this young pastor, Timothy, trying to deal with all of this. And what is Paul's advice to him? Is it, go find the latest best-selling book on leadership? Is it, uh, go figure out how to lead a successful organization and eliminate all negativity? No. Paul's charge to him is be committed to the Word. Be committed to the Word of God. See, the Scripture is what guards us against false teaching. We see that false teaching really manifests in two different ways. First, it will manifest in a uh, wrong belief or wrong doctrine. And second, it will manifest in a wrong way of living. In fact, these two are often very connected. Often the wrong doctrine flows out of a desire for wrong living. And these, these false teachers were no different. And so Paul then confronts that on two levels. First, on a level of right living, and second, on a level of right teaching, right doctrine, right belief. So that's what we see in verse 10. We see Paul setting himself up as a contrast. So in light of all these false teachers in the first nine verses, verse 10 then, Paul says, You, Timothy, however, so making a contrast, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, and my persecutions and sufferings. So Paul is setting himself up as a contrast and saying, Timothy, you've seen how all these other men and women act, but you've also seen how I act. So follow me. Timothy, you've seen what all these other men and women are teaching, but we've also seen what I'm teaching. Follow me. We all need people like this in our lives. We all need people who, who can say to us, follow me. What Paul says elsewhere, imitate me as I imitate Christ. We all need examples of what it looks like to actually live out the Christian life. Because 
if we're honest, we are all faced daily with bad examples of this. See, our kids and our students are inundated daily with bad examples of what it looks like to be a man or a woman. Our young adults are inundated daily with bad examples of what it looks like to be a husband or a wife or a father or a mother. Our middle-aged adults are inundated daily with bad examples of what it looks like to be an employee or a boss or a coworker. Our older adults are inundated daily with bad examples of what it looks like to be in retirement. And obviously there's overlap here, but the point is that all of us are seeing every day bad examples of what it looks like to live a life according to the Bible's standards. And so we need good examples. I'm so thankful for my parents, the two most Christ-like people I've ever met. My siblings, who love Jesus and, and even at different stages of life are pointing me toward Him. I think of other family members. I think of Dan Allen, who, uh, who, who shows me, demonstrates to me what it looks like to love Jesus, to be committed to the Word, to love a church well. We need these examples. I, I think of people whom I've spent a lot of time with who are dead, who have long ago completed this race and, 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 and endured to the end without making shipwreck of their faith. People like Charles Spurgeon, whom I've learned so much from. We need examples like this in our lives of people that we can look at. Like Paul says here to Timothy, you've seen me follow me instead of them. Dan tells me all the time, watch your life and doctrine closely. And that's it. False teaching is wrong living and wrong teaching. And so the antidote to that is right living and right teaching. If you want to stand firm against false teaching, you're going to need to demonstrate the gospel with your words and with your actions. Now, this isn't meaning, sometimes people say, well, preach the gospel and if necessary, use words. No, 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 you need to use words. This is not good advice, this is good news. It is the declaration that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. We must use words, but we also must live it with our lives. And so you say, well, Josh, there's not a whole lot in here about Scripture, but I hope what we'll see is that uh, the way I've phrased it, that Scripture is sufficient to guard us against false teaching, becomes very evident through what we'll see coming up in the next few points. Because second, we see that Scripture is sufficient to know God. Scripture is sufficient to know God. Now, this was the point of last week's sermon, but we'll return again because it comes up here in the text in verse 15. Paul writes, how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. In other words, Scripture contains everything that you and I need to know in order to be saved, in order to know God and follow God. If you have these words and nothing else, you have all the words you need in order to be saved. You know everything there is to know about Jesus and how to follow him. Now, this doesn't mean that we know everything there is to know about God. I mean... Think about, for example, you're, uh, if you're getting ready to meet a new person and you have a mutual friend, you might say to them, what do I need to know about them? Now, you're not asking in that moment for the entire life story, for everything there possibly is to know about this person. You're asking, the, the intention behind that is, what do I need to know that might impact the way I relate to them? That's what we mean when we say that Scripture contains everything we need to know about God. He is infinite and eternal, which means that for all of eternity we will be discovering more and more of the goodness of God, which is thrilling. But what we have here is everything we need to know that might impact how we relate to Him. That we learn that we are sinners, deserving of His punishment, of His wrath, of His condemnation. Yet we learn that the triune God 
one coherent story of him redeeming his people, that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, took on flesh and, and was, was killed for our sins and raised for our justification. This tells us everything we need to know about how to believe in God and follow him. And so a large part of how we combat false teaching is by knowing the truth. You actually you have to know the truth in order to know what's wrong and, and what's right. When false teaching comes up, the only way you can know that it's false is if you know what's true. Uh, J.T. English, the pastor, uses the illustration. He says, if I were to tell you that I love my wife and I were to tell you all these things about her, and yet then you very quickly come to realize that everything I just told you about her was false, you would also very quickly come to doubt whether I really love my wife. Now, if that's true on, on a human level, how much more so of God? If we say, I love God, and yet we don't know him, well, we would be right to question what, how much we actually love him. As Jim Wilkin has said many times, the heart cannot love what the mind does not know. We must know God if we claim to love him. So that's one way that Scripture guards us against false teaching. But another way is that Scripture is sufficient to follow God. Scripture is sufficient to follow God. This is where we turn then in verses 16 and 17. It says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. See, knowing God is not the only indicator of how much we love Him. Following God is also an indicator. Augustine said, Anyone who thinks that he has understood the divine scriptures or any part of them, but cannot by his understanding build up this double love of God and of neighbor, has not yet succeeded in understanding them. In other words, he's saying, if you say you know the Bible, and yet it's not making you more loving, there's reason to doubt whether you actually know the Bible. See, the Bible should lead us to a deeper love for God. And if we're not living it out, it calls into question whether we actually love Him. Let me use an example. Let's say that you get home and you find that your spouse has left you a note on the counter. It says, hey honey, can you pick up some milk from the store? Now, you can look at that note and begin parsing out what it means. The hey denotes some a bit of informality. So there's a close relationship, and the honey denotes that as well, right? We, we know from the context and the culture that, that honey can also be another term for, of affection for a loved one. So, okay, hey, honey, there's, this, is a, this is a close relationship. We, we know each other. Can you? Well, the, the can means, well, are you able to? Well, yes, I'm able to. Can you pick up? Right? Well, pick up means to lift, but in our American context, right? You're, you can also grab from the store or something like that. And then the milk is the object of what is, is wanted. The location is the store. You can parse out all this, but if your spouse gets home and says, where's the milk? Did you actually understand the letter? If you didn't go and pick it up, the question is, did you actually understand it as you ought? The same is true of the Bible. I'm not meaning to demean any sort of exegesis of Scripture. We must do that. Like I just said, we must know God. But if in our study for Scripture, it doesn't actually lead us to living it out, the question is whether we've actually understood this. Because the point of this book is for us to see God, to know Him, and to follow Him. So if it doesn't lead to that, it's fair to wonder if we've actually understood this as it intends to be understood. See, these, these verses tell us that everything that we need to know about how to follow God perfectly and obediently is contained in these pages of Scripture. 
Everything that needs to happen for us to live a godly life is accomplished by the Spirit of God through the Word of God. It says for, for teaching. You want to teach someone how to follow God? The Scriptures do that. For reproof. You want to correct someone, point out a wrong way of living or a wrong way of thinking? Well, the Scriptures do that. You want to correct someone, that is, uh, show them where they're wrong, but also show them how to live rightly? Well, the Scriptures do that. You want to train someone in righteousness, that is, make disciples that actually live and, and, and follow God? Well, the Scriptures do that. And so, in fact, Paul says here that the Scriptures, so that the man of God, which is a term used in the Old Testament for kind of the, the, the messenger of God, so we could say the pastor here in this case, so Pastor Timothy, but we can take this point and extend it to all of us as believers, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for what? Every good work. Every good work. Scripture equips us for that. That's what we mean when we say it is sufficient. Which means that if it's not in the Bible, it's not ultimately a matter of Christian obedience. So, when you and I are faced with a decision, the very first question we must ask is, what does the Bible say? Now, I'm not meaning to, to demean prayer in any way, but, but, but if you're wondering, should I cheat on my spouse? You don't need to pray about that to figure out God's will. He's told you. Now, you, you probably do need to pray about it for the Spirit to, give, to empower you to actually live that out, right? You don't need to pray about whether that's God's will for your life. You know that. The first step in any decision is always, what does the Bible say about this? And if the Bible says it, that settles it. When the Bible says do this, we do that. When the Bible says don't do this, we don't do that. Obviously, it's a lot easier said than done. We need the Spirit of God to empower this obedience in our lives. But nonetheless, we know how to follow God. That's the point. He's told us how to live obediently. He's not hiding from us. He's not waiting for us to try to figure out how we can please Him. He's not waiting for us to choose the grail and say, well, you chose poorly. No, He's told us how to follow Him and how to obey Him. If we live this out, we've lived obediently. And this means both things that are set forth explicitly, but also implicitly. These, these things that come up from Scripture, if, if the Bible addresses it, it settles the matter. But it means we also pay attention to what the Bible doesn't address. If the Bible doesn't address it, then we conclude that it's not ultimately a matter of obeying God or not. Then this falls into the realm of Christian freedom and of wisdom. The Bible talks a lot about wisdom. It wouldn't need to talk about wisdom if we expected that every step along the way God was going to point out exactly where to go. It tells us, you know, you, you, you know the Bible, and by the Spirit of God you apply the Bible into various situations in life, and then you try to make the wise decision. But it's not ultimately one of obeying God or not, it's one of wisdom or not. And what I'm meaning by this is Christians in general, as a whole, I'm not letting you off the hook individually just yet. But as a whole, if we're going to prescribe something as a matter of Christian obedience for all Christians in general, we must stick to only what the Bible has said. Let me use an example. What about dancing? Now, many of you probably have varying opinions about dancing, about how it should be done, when it should be done. But the Bible doesn't ultimately address that. It doesn't tell us whether to dance or not. And so the moment that we try to say that all Christians in general must do this in order to be obedient is the moment we begin denying the sufficiency of Scripture and the moment we begin denying the freedom of the Christian. 
But there might be times where you say, for me to dance is a sin, and therefore don't dance. That's the second level of our decision making. First is what does the Bible say? Second then is what about my conscience? See, Paul says elsewhere that when, when, when we're faced with a decision, right, think eating foods. He says all foods are clean. All of them are clean. You can eat them or not eat them as, as a Christian. But if, so, so in other words, if you go to someone and say, hey, hey Jeff, you're sinning by eating that. That's denying the sufficiency of Scripture and denying our Christian freedom. But if you say, for me, to eat that is a sin, then, then Paul says, don't eat it. See, God gave us our conscience to, to help in these matters. But we, we've got to be careful. It's not like Jiminy Cricket said to Pinocchio that always let your conscience be your guide. No, no, no. He's given, given us the Bible so that we don't have to always let our conscience be our guide because that can become a mess. We know how to follow God. In the matters not included in this book, though, we live according to our conscience, we live according to wisdom, and we pray that the Spirit of God would, would help us see, uh, apply this, this word to our lives here. And the third level, then, would be what's the effect on other people? This is a level that we often don't think about. It's not a matter of obedience or not. And so we think, if it's not in the Bible, well, then I have every right to do it. And so you see posts on social media like that begin, I don't care if it offends someone, and then it says it. Now, the point might be valid, but our motivation should never be, I don't care if this offends someone. Our motivation should always be love. Because Paul takes that food example and doesn't just apply it to our conscience, but he applies it to how we live with one another. And he says, if you're going to cause someone else to stumble, don't eat it. In other words, your Christian freedom is always subservient to love for other people. That's not true of the Bible. Now, everything in the Bible is, is, to, is lived out with love. So everything in here will lead us to deeper love. But ultimately, this settles it. If the Bible says it, we do it. Because, see, the Bible says that Christ crucified is the stumbling block. So if people stumble over that, okay. But may it never be said that they stumble over you or I. If they're going to stumble, let it be over Christ crucified, not over my preferences and opinions. So we live with love for one another. We ask, what's the effect on someone else? How is this going to build them up? How is this going to edify them? But kind of encompassing all of this, then summing this all up, what it means is that when we are faced with a, with a decision in our life, we ask, does the Bible address it? And if it doesn't, we recognize that this is not ultimately a matter of obeying God or not. This is a matter of wisdom and of prudence and of love. This is intended to free us up, but sometimes it can feel discouraging because we want God to just tell us every decision and everywhere to go, and we say, God, what's your will for my life? And, and we pray that on matters of whom, whom should I marry? What job should I take? And these are, it's not wrong to pray those things. But might it be that the things Scripture addresses are actually supposed to lead us to see what God views as most important? Might it be that when Scripture is filled with how we are to live and doesn't really address what job you are to work, might it be that that should give us an indication as to what matters most to God? I'm not saying He doesn't care about those things that are important to you. He does. But rather than telling you in His Word a matter of obedience or not what job to take, it's how do you live as a Christian in the, in the midst of that? How do, you, how do you live as a Christian See, most of us in our jobs 
unless you're a pastor, the Bible's not going to be a manual for what you're doing. If you want to know what's 2 plus 2, you're not going to find the answer in the Bible. If you want to know how do I get to Columbus, well, you're not going to find the directions in the Bible. It's not Google. It's not intended to be. The Bible's intended to, to, to tell us who God is and how we can obey Him. That's what it's telling us. And so, of course, we need other wisdom that, that tells us maybe specifics of how to do your job. But what God cares about is how you're living in the midst of that. What's your character? That's the will of God for your life, that you would become more like Christ. So the, the scriptures help us see those things that most matter to God, that helps us free up in our decision-making process as we follow God, knowing that he's not withholding something from us that's going to ultimately be a matter of obeying him or not. So this also then applies to how we fight against sin. I'll, I'll let you in on, on what my fight against sin and temptation looks like. I remember reading a passage from John Piper, that probably shouldn't surprise us, about how we fight against sin. And he says this, Battling unbelief and fighting for faith in future grace means that we fight fire with fire. We throw against the promises of sin, the promises of God. We take hold of some great promise God has made about our future, and we say to a particular sin, match that. That's how I fight sin. Because, I, and I've, I've talked with Dan about this, when, when, when I'm tempted, it's always tempted to doubt the goodness of God, to think that he's withholding from me something that will truly make me happy. And so the way I fight this is I see what sin, what sin is promising, what it's offering, the pleasure, the allure. And then I take hold of a promise in the Bible. I have note cards that I'll go through on a, on a daily basis of Scripture, of promises of God. I hold that up against whatever sin is promising. I say, match that, and it never can. The promises of God are always better. This is actually how Jesus fought sin, too. It fought temptation, not sin. He, Jesus did not sin, but he was tempted to sin. He was led into the wilderness for 40 days by the Holy Spirit. He didn't eat anything. So after 40 days of, of not eating anything, he's as vulnerable as he would ever be. Satan comes to him, and the first thing he offers is, turn this stone into bread. Well, that would be pretty enticing if you've just gone 40 days without food, right? Here's what Jesus says. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone. He's quoting Deuteronomy 8.3. Well, then Satan tempts him, hey, submit to me and I'll give you all these kingdoms of the earth. And Jesus responds, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. He's quoting Deuteronomy 6.13. And then Satan tempts him and says, throw yourself off this temple and the angels will come to save you. And Satan actually quotes scripture to him and Jesus responds, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Quoting Deuteronomy 6.16. The way that Jesus fought temptation. Now, he never sinned. You and I sin. We give in to temptation. Jesus never did. The way that he fought against that temptation was by knowing the Bible. He knew what the scriptures said. And so when a temptation to sin came up, he threw the scripture against it. So it's rather futile and foolish for us to think that we can fight against sin if we don't know this book. If we don't know the Bible, how do we think we're going to be able to withstand 
the temptations that come. Our Lord Jesus, when he was tempted, knew the Bible and used the Bible. It's a model for us as well. When we are tempted, we know the Bible and we use the Bible. I quoted this previously, but I'll quote it again. There's an old saying that goes, Either this book will keep you from sin, or sin will keep you from this book. And so, when I am tempted, I sin. Jesus didn't. I do. I give in. But nonetheless, the way I fight is I know the Bible. I hold up the Bible against whatever sin is offering. And I say, match that. Nothing can match the promises of God. And so in the midst of a Romans 7 world where it feels like we're always just not doing what we want to do or doing what we don't want to do, and it feels like there's this swirling, we throw against them the promise of Romans 8. We fight sin because we believe what's coming. We believe of, of who Jesus is and what he's done for us and that nothing can separate us from him. And so in light of that, then we say, what then can sin possibly offer me that would hold up against that? And the answer is nothing. And so we fight sin by the power of the word of God. What I hope you're seeing is that in all of this, Scripture is how we follow God. Scripture tells us what we need to know about how to obey Him. Scripture also tells us those categories that are areas of freedom or of, of um, love for other Christians. And Scripture also tells us how we fight against sin, how we fight against temptation. All of this happens through the Word of God. And so this should lead us to be deeply centered on the Word of God in everything that we do, which includes then as a church. I want to throw this one in here just, just real briefly because I want you to see what Paul concludes in light of this message to Timothy. He says, Timothy, this is what the Word of God is. Like I said, it's probably the most well-known passage on Scripture in the entire Bible. Where does Paul go right after that? Chapter 4. Verse 1, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom. In other words, Jesus is coming back. He is the judge. Don't fear these false teachers. Fear the Lord Jesus. Don't be swayed away by these false teachers. Follow the Lord Jesus. That's why he says this. And then what does he say in response to that? So, so Timothy, what am I charging you to do? In light of everything I've just said about the scripture, in light of all this, what am I telling you to do? Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Does that sound familiar? I can hardly think of a more appropriate description of where we're at today. People who will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions? People who will wander away from the truth and into myths? We might say conspiracy theories? This hits us where we're at. And the reason I want to point that out is because sometimes we think, well, yeah, Scripture was sufficient for that audience because it was addressing them directly where they're at. It was, it was written to them in that culture, in that context, and so of course it was sufficient for them. But, man, things have changed in the last 2,000 years. It's good advice, it's helpful, but we need something more in our crazy world. But we're in the exact same situation. The mediums and the methods may have changed, but there's nothing new under the sun. 
the things that Timothy was facing are the same things you and I are facing. The things that the church at Ephesus was facing are the same things that the church at Ashland is facing. And so then, we should also listen to the conclusion, to the antidote, to the, to the, to the solution. You say, well, okay, Doc, what's the, what's, the, what's the solution to this? You've diagnosed the problem. What do we do? Paul says, preach the word. We've got to be centered on the word of God in everything we do. A high view of scripture will and must lead to a high view of preaching. See, what we do in our worship services actually flows out of what we believe about the sufficiency of Scripture. You say, what? Well, you might have been coming here to Grace for a long time. You might have noticed that you know, we sing, we pray, we preach. All these are good, and you, you just probably say, well, that's just the way it's always been done. It's just a traditional way to do it. Well, that might be true, but the reason we do that is because that's what God has told us to do in His Word. We believe that God has told us how to worship Him. Again, let me use an illustration. I really don't like surprises. I, uh, so let's just say that you throw me a surprise birthday party. And uh, you're thinking, oh, Josh is just going to love this. And I'm thinking, I can't wait to get out of here. All right, that's, that's a little extreme. I, listen, I, I know, I, I understand people are... Uh, doing what they, what they came to love. But here's the difference. If I were to tell you directly, I hate surprises, don't throw me a surprise party, and you throw me a surprise party, what would I be thinking? I'd probably be like, did you hear me? Did you hear what I was saying? And yet, sometimes we think that God has told us how to worship Him, and yet, well, as long as you do it from good motives, whatever works. But what we're really saying to God is, I know better how to worship you than you do. What we're saying is, well, this will reach more people. This will be more effective. This is what people want. See, the reason why we do our worship services the way that we do here at Grace is because we believe that Scripture is sufficient, that God has told us how to worship Him, and so we do that. Ligon Duncan, I think, has a helpful way of phrasing it to help us see the centrality of the Word in everything that we do. He says that when we gather together, we read the Bible, we preach the Bible, we pray the Bible, we sing the Bible, and we see the Bible, which he says in the ordinances of the Lord's Supper and of baptism. The reason we worship this way is because we believe God has told us how to worship Him. And so, again, taking what we've looked at this morning in, in this text, we see that we live this way because God has told us to live this way. And that includes you individually in your faith with Christ, that includes you individually in your life. That includes you individually in how you relate to other people. And that includes us corporately as a church. All of that is told by God how to live. Scripture is sufficient. It equips us for every good work. And so I hope that we've seen that Scripture is sufficient to guard us against false teaching because Scripture is sufficient for your faith, for your living, for our corporate worship. All of this is addressed by the Bible. But we don't obey in order to earn His favor. We obey because we've already been, been given it in Christ. We don't obey because we think that by our works we're going to earn a, a right standing with Christ. We obey because Christ's works are sufficient for us. We rest in His merits and we strive then to follow Him. He's told us everything we need to know about how to live obediently to Him and so we live it out. Because see, you and I are ambassadors of this great kingdom. Our church is an embassy, an outpost in a foreign land of our king's great 
uh, his great kingdom. We have our citizenship papers. We have our passports. We know we belong to his kingdom. And so even now while we're living in this foreign land, we're longing for home. And our king has given us a glimpse. In his, in his, in his book, in his word, he's given us a glimpse of heaven. It is opening a window to our glorious home. It is showing us who our king is and how to live as his ambassadors. We, 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 we catch the fresh breeze coming in. We see the lights flickering in the distance and we long for home. And, and, and as we're waiting for him to return and bring us home, we're living right now as ambassadors of him. Scripture is the window to see this kingdom, to see this king and to see how we, we, we represent him to the world and to one another. Martin Luther said that the more one drinks from this hose of Scripture, the more it stimulates our thirst. In other words, the more that we dive into the Bible, the more we have a longing to dive in all the more. As others have said, Scripture is shallow enough for a child to play in without drowning, but is deep enough for an elephant to swim. No matter where you are on your journey, there is more treasures to be unearthed in this book. There is more of the glory of who our King is left to be seen. And there is more about how we are to live a life pleasing to Him left to be obeyed. Scripture is enough for us to, to know God and to follow Him perfectly because this book opens a window to heaven for us to see the great King and to follow Him as His ambassadors. Let me pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. May You use this to grow us to love You more both in our knowledge and in our lives, and, and that it would lead us then to a deeper love for one another as well. May we be ever devoted to your word to us. May we live as your ambassadors until you bring us home. We love you, we praise you, and we pray all of this in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.